On October 22, 2007, 20-year-old Navy Master Sergeant-at-Arms Seaman Anna Marie San Nicolas Camacho and 19-year-old Navy Master Sergeant-at-Arms Seaman Janessia Gresham were shot and killed by fellow sailor, 20-year-old Clarence Jackson, who then turned the gun on himself and attempted to shoot himself in the head, but lived. Due to the determination by a medical board, Clarence Jackson was declared unfit for duty and did not face charges for his crime, as he was in a vegetative state. But is this outcome fair for Anna Marie, Janessia, and their families? Let's break down the details. Secrets of the Trees presents The Tragic Deaths of Anna Marie San Nicolas Camacho and Janessia Gresham. The deaths of Anna Marie and Janessia are categorized as non-combat related deaths, and while I'm not exactly sure what I visualize when I hear the words non-combat related death, I certainly don't think of service members dying at the hands of fellow service members. Anna Marie San Nicolas Camacho was born in Tinian, a commonwealth of the northern Mariana Islands. She was described by her mother as a joyful child who was independent. After graduating from high school in Panama City, Florida, she decided to enlist in the Navy sometime in 2006. Her mother, Jovi San Nicolas Paulino, said Anna Marie wanted to attend college, but said it was expensive and was planning on using the educational benefits the military had to offer to fund her degree. Janessia Gresham, who was from Lithonia, Georgia, was considered family by many of her fellow sailors. Known to her friends and family as Snowflake, Janessia had an infectious smile, happy demeanor, and beaming energy as she would crack jokes to make those around her laugh and smile. According to the book Waging Gendered Wars, U.S. Military Women in Afghanistan and Iraq by Paige Whaley Eager, which discusses the impacts and experiences of U.S. military women on and in Iraq and Afghanistan, Clarence Jackson and Janessia had a volatile relationship. He had threatened her in the past, had been disciplined for it, and was ordered to stay away from her. The restrictions had just ended when Jackson shot Janessia and Anna Marie, and then he turned the gun on himself. It is believed he held the gun to the left side of his head before pulling the trigger. The bullet went through his brain and exited, however trace amounts of bullet fragments remain lodged inside. Unfortunately, Jackson lived. There is little to no information on Jackson after he shot himself, but he was transferred to the National Naval Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland, from Germany, and in February 2008, he was transferred to a VA center in Minneapolis, Minnesota to be closer to his family, where he remained in a vegetative state. He was not expected to regain consciousness, and I could not find any recent updates as to his medical condition. So, how was Jackson able to secure a firearm? Well, apparently he was part of security forces and was on duty when the shooting occurred, so even though he had made threats against another person before and placed under restrictions for said threats, he was still entrusted with carrying a gun. Now, how does that make sense? Just who thought this was a good idea? The reason for why Anne-Marie was also killed has been stated as unknown, though it is possible that because she was Janessia's roommate and therefore was there when Jackson came to the room to murder Janessia, she may have been an unintended target. Anna-Marie and Janessia died at the scene. Jackson was rushed to the hospital. At first, Navy security teams thought there was an active shooter on base and began evacuating hundreds of personnel from the barracks and into the gym as the barracks building was searched. Many of the personnel were in their underwear or nightwear and had to be provided with clothes from the PX since they weren't allowed back into the rooms for hours while the searches were conducted. Despite the lockdown being lifted after an hour, the barracks were still off-limits. It was reported that the murders occurred on the fourth floor of the barracks, which housed junior enlisted personnel and visiting military staff. A week after the murders, more than 300 sailors attended a memorial service for Anna Marie and Janessia. 
At the service, the commander of the U.S. Naval Forces Central Command and the Fifth Fleet preached forgiveness to the packed room, telling sailors who were understandably upset over the murders to let go of that feeling. Another member of the leadership, the commanding officer of the Naval Support Activity in Bahrain, implored sailors to make the right choices, including choosing to forgive rather than curse and to use the power of choice carefully in the days ahead and honor the loss of their shipmates. Just to make sure that I understand, it was known Janessia had issues with Jackson, and the situation escalated to the point where he was disciplined and ordered to stay away from her. Then after the restriction ended, he went back to his job that had access to firearms, and then while on duty, sought out Janessia and killed her, and then killed Anna Marie, who happened to be in her room when the first murder happened, and then Jackson turned the gun on himself, but he lived, and then he had to be moved to a hospital for long-term care, since he is brain-dead and comatose, a whole situation that could have been prevented had it been dealt with promptly and accordingly, and they were asked to forgive instead of being angry? How out of touch. A Navy spokeswoman at the time dismissed allegations that Jackson had attacked one of the victims as rumors, the victim in question being Janessia. This contradicts other reports that Jackson had physically attacked Janessia four months prior to the murders and had even been on suicide watch shortly before the murders. The spokeswoman also stated that people working at this particular base were allowed to have relationships, as long as they adhered to a strict policy and it did not disrupt the workforce. She was quoted as saying, they have to be within their own pay grade and chain of command. How does dating within the same chain of command make any sense? The pay grade difference makes sense to me, but within the same chain of command? And this relationship was clearly disruptive to the workforce, so why were they allowed to remain in the same chain of command? Well, were they even in the same chain of command after the restraining order ceased? From my understanding, between service members, when there is some kind of allegation of sexual assault, the two individuals are separated. One individual remains at their original unit, and the other individual gets sent to a different unit, but still in the same general geographical area. I guess in a way it doesn't matter if the assailant or victim gets sent to a different unit, if they're still in the same physical area, they're still in close proximity to each other. This is an example of a situation in regards to sexual assault. I'm not sure if the same method of separating service members occurs when there's a restraining order without a sexual assault component. If Jackson was issued a restraining order to keep away from Genesia, but remained in the same area, he was possibly still a threat, and in the end, the threat was actualized as he murdered her. These murders happened at the Naval Support Activity Bahrain Base, located just outside of Bahrain's capital, Manama. A quick Google search showed that presently, NSA Bahrain is home to approximately 9,000 military personnel and DOD civilian employees assigned to NSA Bahrain and 78 tenant commands, as well as joint and coalition forces. However, a post by the Military Times honoring Genesia stated the amount of personnel at the time of her murder was 3,600. It's kind of hard to visualize if 3,600 people is a lot or little, so let me put it into perspective for you. According to a crowd visualizer website, about 3,000 people can fill up a performing arts theater with two upper tiers. The McGorman Chapel and Performing Arts Center in Fort Worth, Texas, seats approximately 3,500, so if you want to look up an extremely close visualization of how many people 3,600 is, that's your best bet to look up. If I stood at one end of the room and you stood at the other, I could yell out and you could probably hear me. If that was the case and there was only 3,600 personnel working the time, why not put some more distance between them? Like a whole other country or continent? 
Who would think leaving someone so volatile in such close proximity to the person they are harassing would be a good idea? In an article by the Gulf Daily News, which had interviewed Genesia's mother, she revealed that she was denied the chance of taking legal action against the Navy. She had been in contact with NCIS months earlier about the case. NCIS, or the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, informed her that the investigation was not closed and still ongoing. However, this contradicted what yet another Navy spokesperson said, which was that the U.S. Regent Legal Service Office for the Midwest evaluated the case for prosecution and determined Jackson to be mentally incompetent and therefore unfit to stand trial. On June 22nd, the Physical Evaluation Board evaluated Jackson's status and determined him to be unfit to continue naval service due to the disability caused by his intentional misconduct. He will therefore be separated from the Navy without benefits and the investigation is now over. So how do you prosecute someone who's in a vegetative state? And that's where things get complicated. These situations aren't so cut and dry. There are layers of ethical and moral dilemmas when approaching these. Maybe you feel like, well, since he's in a vegetative state, that's some sort of poetic justice for what he did to Anna Maria and Genesia. Maybe you feel bad for him since he will be bedridden until he passes or is removed from life support. Maybe you feel that it's not right to charge him while he's unable to defend himself. Or you say to yourself, what are they supposed to do? Handcuff him to his hospital bed and throw him in a cell? If you recall, I mentioned that Jackson was transferred to a VA center in Minnesota. Given that these murders happened nearly 15 years ago, some of these articles do not have a date stamp. Therefore, I'm not sure if Jackson was transferred to a VA facility before or after the Navy spokesperson said that he was separated from the Navy without benefits. If for some reason he was separated but was having his care paid for by the Navy, then this is just not right. In my opinion, Jackson should not be cared for at a VA center or have any of his care covered by the VA or military in any way, shape, or form. Had Jackson not turned the gun on himself, or maybe survived with mental capacity, he would have been dishonorably discharged after being charged with murder. Veterans with this kind of discharge are immediately ineligible for all VA benefits, whether that be educational, healthcare, vocational, etc. But let's circle back to the difficult question of how do we proceed in these situations. For example, in a somewhat similar case, without resolution, 16-year-old Brittany Binger was raped and murdered by a man who is non-verbal and deaf and thus unable to defend himself against the charges since he doesn't understand them. So he's been held in an educational facility for an indeterminate amount of time until he gets better. This facility he's been living in provides him with free food, a warm bed, and safety, a sharp contrast to the dilapidated shed he was living in previously. In both of these cases, we know who the suspect is. It's what investigators would call a slam-dunk case, so why no conviction? Obviously, in this case, Jackson is brain-dead and comatose, laying in a bed with no chance of waking up. So how do you convict him of this horrific crime and bring justice to the families of Janessia and Anna Marie? I don't know. I had difficulty finding cases where there was a suspect or assailant who was in a vegetative state and was pending a conviction. I think the best course of action here is to hold the chain of command responsible for failing to provide a safe environment for Genesia and, by extension, Anna Marie. Genesia took the appropriate steps to report the situation. Her chain of command failed her, and Anna Marie. I mean, for the love of God, heads rolled when some Marines from 3-6 lost a pair of rifles and a flak jacket during a training exercise. The lieutenant colonel and sergeant major at the time were both relieved of duties due to a loss of trust and confidence, according to a spokesperson for the 2nd Marine Division. If we can cut a lieutenant colonel and a sergeant major for the actions of their subordinates, then we can hold accountable Navy leadership for the horrific actions of Jackson. Do a pair of rifles and a flak jacket matter more than the lives of Genesia and Anna Marie? 
It's completely understandable for the rest of the sailors to be pissed off when their friends were killed, since it was clear-cut how leadership failed Genesia and Anna-Marie, the same leadership these grieving sailors were under. In my research of this case, I found a couple of Facebook posts about these ladies stating things like, thank you for your sacrifice, and how they passed in non-combat related deaths. Way to gloss over what really happened. They were murdered. Murdered by a fellow sailor. A jilted ex-lover who was unhinged. Their commands failed them. The Navy failed them. They said the murderer is comatose and unable to stand trial. He won't be charged. Case over. And what sacrifice? They didn't die protecting our freedoms, this country. They were murdered. And these were deaths that may have been prevented had someone just taken the time to do the right thing. 